Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson, and this is The Road Taken. And with me is my wing woman, Louise Palanker. I just took this road right over here. <laughs> okay, so now, Louise, the question is, yeah. are we, we're live, we're not Memorex, are we blurry? Hashtag are we blurry. Um, Louise, we are crystal fucking clear. Nice. Hey! We should zoom a little bit, though. We should zoom a little bit. All right, this is really exciting. For those of you who don't know, for two weeks now, we have been in the blur zone, which is not a good thing when you're interviewing a filmmaker. Poor Henry um, thought that Louise and I were running a horse and pony show. Is that the expression, horse and pony show? Well, when we run it, it's a it's a dog and pony. it's a dog and pony donkey show. and pony well, and whatever. Cart. So anyway, some juggling. It was Excuse it me. was blurry, and that's really not nice and not fair. It was a great interview, but I want to say for anybody that wants to um, listen to the Henry, you know, all these podcasts yeah, are up on. Divine. Well, no, they're also on iTunes, SoundCloud. Yeah. Tune in. Uh, what's the other one? Stitcher. You can listen. But you know, I think that I look nice in soft focus. I think it's actually how. And yeah. Ray Parker, when we were with Ray last week, he couldn't have cared less. He's so cute, right? And he could not have cared less no, that we were he's so He was like, "I'm not wearing my glasses. It looks good to me." He, he was, didn't care. But yeah, I, Henry. So, but I, I have literally. This is no lie. I'm on the Ray train. I, I have lost so much sleep worrying about this, and I've done about thirty test videos in the last. You have Two been days. a little obsessive about the subject. Well, because it's it's our show. You know, I think we're too close now. But all right, I, I'll, I'll, I'll you'll, zoom you'll, back out. You'll zoom back out when yeah. Barry comes in. So anyway, what I wanted to talk about, first of all, we didn't get to do our commercials the last two weeks because we, we went right in there. We yeah. didn't get to talk about Rick Smokey. Quick impressions yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, and his, his quick impressions would have been blurry impressions. <laughs> well, but now they're crystal clear. Now they're very clear. And he made my, my tissue boxes. Somebody, this is really cool. Some guy got on the thread, one of my threads yesterday, and he took a picture. He was at, he, we were just talking about this, he was at the Big Star event that we did with Mike Nesmith when yeah. he produced Women Who Ride Up There. Mm -hmm. And he was there and he had, a, he had the tissue box from all those years ago and he took Aww. pictures of it and he put it on Facebook, which is really cool. And Rick made my cards and, it, oh, I have, to get a, I have to get a book for Barry. Um, I haven't told him about this Barry's yet. Barry's not supposed to read during the show. No, he, okay, we won't let him read during the show. My bookmarks, Rick Smokey, Quick Impressions in Chicago. If you say Vicki Abelson, anything, Louise, the road taken, anything. I got free cards. She, I can't say he's going to do it for free, but I'm telling you, he's going to give you like a deal. But he's so nice. He's so nice. And he does really good work, and he'll give you the best deal anywhere, and he'll get it to you fast. And he's just, like, he's a good guy. He does so much charity work, so much. Um, and that's the kind of person I want to do business with, right? Absolutely. He's excellent. And also, my hairdresser, Nicole Venables, right. with the Ruby Begonia Salon. And she is fabulous, and I really need to go. If you haven't noticed, my bangs are in my eyes. So it's time to go to Nicole. You haven't noticed. Uh, so, anyway, what I wanted to talk about tonight before we bring our guest out, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> so I wrote this little article called Sex and the Sober Girl. Mm -hmm. And in the article... I was drunk when I read it, but... I think it's probably pretty good. And actually, on Saturday, I celebrated 16 years sober. But, but thank you. But, the, but I wasn't an alcoholic like the rest of those losers. No, I, 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 hey, I didn't have a thing. No, I didn't have a thing with alcohol. My, my deal was with pot. And that I haven't done for 17 Your and a half years. dealer was with pot. 
I, my deal, yeah, my dealer was with, I didn't have a deal I, because I had boyfriends for that. Were you dealing? No, I had boyfriends for that. I only went out with guys who were more fucked up than I was. That way they always had the pot. So would you ask on the first date, are you holding? No, if they, if they didn't pull out a joint on the first date, there was no second date. Wow. Didn't happen. Wow. I, yeah. So anyway, um, so I wrote this article and it's for the fix, which is geared at, um, people that are, are active alcoholic addicts in recovery. and then people that are in oh, recovery, but okay. there's also people that haven't gotten sober yet mm -hmm. that are thinking about it. So mm -hmm. they read about it. And so I feel a responsibility to, um, I, I've written for the fix over the years, but this was my first article back since my book came out. And I was very, very, very self-revelatory. It's the kind of article that will make my mother cry, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's a lot of inf it's it's a lot of information about my sexuality. And I thought, so do I put this on Facebook? Have your kids read this? My kids don't. My kids do not read my. They don't want to read my stuff. There's no danger of it. They have no interest in your reading. Mother my has stuff. never had sex, sweetheart. Uh, uh, uh. They they have no interest in in, in reading my stuff. So. Anyway, um, Louise, you keep, I, I'm losing my thought here. Oh, wait, where were we going? So it's very revealing. So it's very self-revelatory. So it's like my whole sex life and everything. And it's like, well, not my whole, it's far from my whole sex life. Um, that was your tones. But in any case. Very um, nice to hear the rest of the other So there's going to be many more articles. So, so last night, somebody on Facebook said, did you, did you, by the domain yet, that's a great name. And I said, no, but I have a pilot. It is a great name. I have a pilot already shot and I've got a treatment written for it. And I was like, I don't want to buy it during the Mercury retrograde, mm -hmm. but it's old business. So I did. So this woman, Tara, Tara, what's Tara's last name? Durkin, talk me into it. I got online last night at 11 o'clock at night. And I bought the domain. So don't even think about stealing my shit out there. But um, anyway. Wow, the threats. So, so that's out there. Wait, there was something else I wanted to, um, the Facebook, oh yeah. So my thing this week, I'm also gonna be writing for another site, which is very exciting. I wanted to say something about the universe being abundant. There are people out there who think that they have to withhold information and they have to keep it to themselves. Like recipes and things like that. Oh, well, and also where the gigs are. Ooh. And they think if I share this information, there'll be less for me. That's not the way, the, not universe the, way the universe works. It's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. The more we give, we can't keep it if we don't give it away. We create ripples and they bounce off of that's yeah, exactly all the happens. energy in the world and they work that And way. that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And so um, I have offered to help this woman get her piece. Um, so Kalinske, a great comedian, and she had a piece that uh, isn't gonna go where she does submit and so I'm gonna help her. And so she turned me onto this other site and connected me with her editor. And this is the way it works. This is what this show is about. This is what life is about. It's about sharing our tools. It's People about sharing our resources because the universe is abundant. Mm -hmm. And the more we do that, the more that comes back to us. And it, it, it just is that way. It's mm -hmm. always that way. Yeah. Right. So, okay. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about tonight for a minute. Oh, see now, I, I don't know who's, uh, who's watching. So, um, Louise, I'm going to ask you tonight, by the way, to check in with us once in a while. Who's saying so, what to us here? Last week with Ray, yeah. the interface wasn't showing me who was on. Oh. So, I don't know if that was another Facebook. And you know Facebook. what? No, it's not, they're not doing it again. They, Facebook has changed it so we can't yeah. see who signed on. We can only see you uh, kind of if you comment. 
So if you want us to know you're out there, just say hello, and then we'll know you're there, and then we can say hi back. Yeah. Um, not always, you know, if we're in the middle of something, we're not gonna do it, but once in a while, you know, we can. You know who's been watching the show, like, almost every week, which was really cool? Who? I'm gonna track him down, Vincent Spano. Ooh. I was a big Vincent Spano fan, and he used to live across from the Rock and Roll Cafe, this club I booked in New York, and um, I, I wonder if he's still in New York. I don't know, but Vincent, if you're out there and you're listening, I'm coming to get you. Um, and Tim Matheson was watching uh, the, the Nancy, the, the Nancy um, Allen show, and I had just watched Animal House like the night before. I was like, oh my God, we, can, we have, so I sent him a note on Facebook, but he doesn't go into his messages, so I have to find another way to get him. He's so dreamy. He is so dreamy. Oh. Um, so anyway, um, tonight, this is kind of weird for me, mm -hmm. because as and we showed in the promo, and if you didn't see it, I don't know if you guys can see this, because it's kind this of- This is before Vicky. So, so, no, but my name, I, I was born Vicky Katz. My father- What's is, with the flower? I know, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't get any work from you. You should so submit this to the Bachelor. <laughs> yeah, because your current headshot. Yeah, except for now, I'm old. <laughs> Just stop making fun of me. I know it's horrible. That's why I didn't get any work. She's from randomly it. holding a flower. Very. I actually did. Do you know I was on Saturday Night Live three times with Billy Crystal for one. Anyway, so that's a whole other story. Okay, so, so it worked. Okay. Nah. The flower. The flower. Give me the girl with the flower. Stop. So. No, but actually, he said that was the exact line he used on the set. He said, "Bring me the girl in the velvet," and he upgraded me and gave, he did this bit with me. But that ended up on the cutting. That's in my book. It's another story. Okay. So anyway, um, I was Vicky Katz. My father was Larry Katz, an entertainer. Our guest tonight, Barry Katz. Right. I've told him at least I've known Barry. He's your I brother. All right, I haven't known Barry in the biblical sense ever. But I, I've known Barry, and not Yet. even like no. Not even like known Barry, like known Barry, but on the peripheral because my husband was a stand-up comic, Gabe Abelson. So, but I actually performed at Barry's club. I don't even know if he knows that, but I did um, a couple sets at his club in New York, Boston Comedy Club, which was a great comedy club in New yeah. York, which is where I actually met Sarah Silverman there before she was like, they have it on crashing. He, um, the guy on crashing gives out flyers so he can get stage time at the Boston. Right? Really? Yeah. I love that. that. So, um, anyway, it was, it, it was a hotbed of talent in those days. And so, in fact, the first time I went in there, I saw Jay Moore, who must have been 16, 17, he was a kid. Mm -hmm. And he was so fantastic. Yeah, and I didn't great. know at the time that Barry was his manager. I think Barry had just started man managing at that time. But I thought Jay was so amazing that I ran to my friend, who was a comedy manager, and I said, you gotta come check out this guy couldn't get him too late. He already had a manager. But I, I met Sarah Silverman there when she was like just, just starting out, just doing early sets. She flirted with Gabe in front of me. I was, he was my boyfriend at the time. It was, <gasps> yes, but I've, I've since gotten over it. I but, love um, Sarah Silverman. I do too. She's wonderful. I adore her. So Barry has had this huge career. He started out, I believe, we're gonna find out, but I believe his original intention was to be a performer. He's but funny. He's funny. He's very funny. Yeah. So, but he went on to to start to do this club, and he managed everybody. Yeah. Everybody who was anybody in comedy, from Dane, Dane Cook, Mark mm -hmm. Marin, Dave Chappelle, I believe it's uh, Jay Moore, um, Wanda Sykes, um, uh, what's uh, um, Whitney Whitney Cumming. I mean, just. Everybody, and we're gonna talk about how those relationships started and who they were, and so then he got into TV. Barry was responsible for brokering 100 deals on television. Last Comic Standing was his, he had action. 
Um, we're gonna talk about those. He also brokered deals for films and an Amy Schumer, Tom Hanks film. I mean, so he's had his hands in all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He's also got his, his own podcast, which he's done 250 shows. He's leaving us in the dust. This is show 88. But, um, but we're, we're, we're only, you know, like not even two years yet. We're kids. We're kids. We're babies. But um, Industry Standard is his podcast. He's interviewed everybody. His first, who did he tell us his first interview was? Um, Dr. Phil. Was, no, that wasn't the first one. The first one, wait. The, oh, it was our guy. D Doug Herzog was his first show. Uh, we love Doug. Yes. But anyway, so we're going to talk about how he got into the podcasting business. But the main thing that I want to talk to Barry about, Barry knows what it takes to write the show, sell the show, you want to be in the show. These are the things that I want to know because, mm -hmm. and, and we want to know because some of us are still trying to sell that show. Um, yeah, I mean, I optioned a, a music reality show in 2005 and I still haven't sold the show. So I want to know the answers to these questions. So, um, so I think we're gonna, we're gonna bring him out. Yeah, he's gonna know way more than me about this stuff. So. I think let's trade Barry. So we're gonna bring out Barry Katz, our guest. Yay! <laughs> it's so professional, isn't it? It's so lovely. Good to see you too. Okay, we're acting like we're seeing each other for the first time. Very so, <laughs> no. Okay, so we need to pull back the shot a little bit, I think. So because Barry's a big man. How how tall are you? Six foot three. You are a big. Was your were your parents tall? Uh, my dad was uh, pretty uh, tall, but he passed away when I was four. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's yeah, a long time ago. So you were raised by a single mom, or did she remarry? No, single mom. And, a single uh, mom? She changed my life forever. How so? I just remember all the things she told me. Like, she would tell me, always wear original and unique shoes as a man. Buy them always. Was your mother styling? No, no well, really? she had her own unique style, I'll explain that, but I said, why do you want me to buy unique and original shoes? She yeah. said, because Barry, when you're out in the world, and if you do that, women will talk to you. That is so interesting. And because she knew that I wasn't the kind of person, because to share with your audience, never in my entire life socially have I ever walked up to a woman who I didn't know and said, Hi, my name's Barry, what's your name? Ever. In business, yes. So she knew I needed the shoes, and then I asked my mom, like, so I got the shoes, women are gonna talk to me, and then she paused and she said, well, you know, after that, it's up to you. <laughs> Is that true you've never introduced never. never. What sign are you? A Leo. Really? And my ex-wife was uh, a, Scorpio. a Scorpio. And, and uh, there's Leos in my past you, so you've never you've really never no. so if in other words so if a woman doesn't make a pass at you it ain't happening not, not happening or it happens organically like where I'm at a party or I'm sitting around with people and somebody sits down or and but I've, I've never I've never done initiated that. no and in business it's forget it. if you're the business, opposite I'm coming right at you it doesn't matter you're a man a woman and armadillo I'm, I'm there that is so interesting. So have the shoes helped you in life? I think they have. 
That's the reason why you booked me. So has has a woman. So now these shoes are no. These are pretty good. I like. So you have to show the shoes now. These are like these are not that original. These are just I gotta share the story with you. No, these are good shoes. I like them. I would like a guy. I'm sorry I put them on the table. That means I'm never getting them. No, I have to tell you this before you tell the rest of your story. So I went out with a guy on Friday night and and we met on on the Tinder. You're on Tinder. Oh God, I'm on Tinder, Bumble, Cupid is don't ask, and and it doesn't work at all. But anyway, so I, I met the guy on Tinder, and um, what's your age range? Much younger than myself. Okay. Tell me what your age range is. Do I have to be yes. honest? Come so on, my age me. range is 35 to 50, and I'm 62. Mm -hmm. So um, I I made my I I was shamed into raising my age range to 62. But I don't really go out with those guys. I, I raised it so that I'm PC, but I they're, they're not who I want to date. But anyway, but I have to get over the the, the thirty guys are total. That, that's just not working. No, out but at this all. is what's so strange. I have to share this with you, and you tell me if yeah. I'm right or wrong. Okay. Okay. So there's something that's happening lately, and this is what's happening. Okay. Women my age don't care about me. They don't even want to borrow me. <laughs> women 10 years younger than me, they don't care about me. 15 years, it's always women in their 20s and 30s Ooh. and or maybe maybe 40. And it's so fascinating, just because I thought I was like, I, I'm thinking to myself, my God, am I like Chester, the child molester? And then you just said- I'm the child molester. No, but you just said like, younger men are attracted to you too, so it goes both ways. So I'm not, I don't feel so bad. It, it's. I have given up trying to figure it out. I just know that organically, that seems to be the thing that fits. Like my wheelhouse is like 36 to 43 or something. I didn't say what happened on your date. Okay, so so the thing about shoes, this this is crazy. So the guy the guy the guy is, uh, is was of the Greek persuasion. Okay, so are you attracted to Greek men? I have never dated a Greek man before. Okay. So, and I was a little concerned about it because I never have. I worked with Greek men at Maxwell's Plum when I was a waitress when I was right out of college. Those were the only Greek men I really knew. So I go out on a date with this guy and we get out on the street. Now, I don't know, this is a terrible, terrible stereotype. This, I'm is, gonna be this, very is, this is after correct. the dinner. We didn't have dinner, we had dr we, drinks. I drink Perrier, but we had drinks. So we walk out on the street afterwards, and this is, this is something that I found to be true of Italian men and Greek men who were born there, and which he was. Um, they wear shoes that are, what is the bot, their wood bot, whatever, that make noise, like their heels click on the street. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I can't go. I can't go out with a man. Oh my God, that is a I, weird. I'm sorry, hand. but it, oh. if it, it's that sound that a woman makes when you she walks, right? You can't date Fred Astaire. No, I could not. I couldn't. The sound really freaked me out. It, there were other elements, but I now, this is something I don't. She understand. has a lot of deal breakers. But I'm saying the shoes do have something to do with the man. The, the shoes. In this case, the shoes matter. It's crazy. I don't click. You don't click. But, but the thing is that never I never click. Never click. I've been learning a lot, man. So <laughs> this is something that's fascinating. You're Listen saying to me. I've ever. <laughs> so I don't understand why you agree to go out for a drink. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just say, "Listen, I, 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 you can take me to dinner, but don't take me out to a drink." I mean, I okay. He, here's the thing. And I feel for men in this. Tinder or Bumble or any of these dating apps, people are, 
there's no longer I'm gonna get to know you because it's next, next, next. There's so many choices, right? So now men who start to date on these apps, a lot of women want to only go out to get free dinners. So they will swipe guys who seemingly have money just so they get taken out every night. They have no intention of seeing these guys ever again. So I understand that men feel put upon in that and don't really want to take a, man, a woman to dinner until he knows that there's something. But actually, the men that, that, that I have actually had a second date with have all started, said, let's go out to dinner or let me take you out to lunch. Anybody that wants to take me to coffee or a drink, it's not, it, that, that's pretty much always the last time I'll ever, that we ever see each other. Not just because of me, it just, it's like the intention, the intention isn't there. The intention to, to really get to know somebody and really have an experience isn't I have there. to tell you this, like I have a client, yeah. I, I can't name the name of the client. Oh come on Barry, nobody will hear this. But she <laughs> would come into my office a lot of times and she would get very emotional at, about her career but also about her the social life and how things work. And mm -hmm. one of the things she said to me, and again, I was married for a long, something. How long were you married? I was married for 13 years, together for 15 years. Okay, I was married for 20, yeah, it's, it's a long and, time. And then I was married uh, a long time ago. My me wife too. Passed, my wife passed away. Oh, no. And so I, I, I sort of was on the shelf for a long time. Me too, 10 so, and 20 years, So it's only years. the past five years that I've really noticed what's happening in the world. Okay. And. But I'm, I'm curious for you and, and how it works for you here. So okay. This is fascinating to me. So she would cry and she would say, Barry, you know, being a woman is so hard. It's like I, if I like somebody and I, I, I go on a third date, if I don't sleep with him, I'm never going to see him again. And so I have to decide whether I want to sleep with him when I don't want to sleep with him or I don't sleep with him and I never see him again. Is that true of your situation? Like, can you go on three dates without sleeping with somebody and they call you again? Well, first of all, she's very fortunate if she gets to the, if, she, if they let her get to the third date without the sex. I have found that 90% of the time it's over after a first date. It's not happening after that. And for all kinds of really, and, and, and what's more interesting than that is that I will have conversations with people like texting and stuff or even on the phone. I will never, I will match with people, never hear a word from them. I play the girl in this situation, so I will not initiate. I I'm, thought you were the girl. I, yeah, but I, I'm a little, I'm like you, if in business, I'm like right on it. If I want, if I want an interview, if I want somebody to come to women who write, I will walk up to any, anybody, anywhere, anytime. Romantically, I want to be pursued because I feel that's the natural order of things. What so you and I would never get out on a date because we'd both you, be sitting there waiting. Now before we get into the heart of this thing, I just have to ask you one more question about this because I'm fascinated. Okay. I'm blown away. This is the road taken, but it's tonight it's the dating edition. When you go out. Yes. Truth serum in your veins. Okay. I always, you'll never get anything but the truth out of me. What do you, what do you, you, let's say the guy's 37. Okay. What do you want? Okay. Honestly. So, I'm going to be honest. Okay. So for me, for me, I went through, you were married a long, well, you weren't married nearly as long as I was. I was married 20 years. At a certain point, 
that shit stops happening. Well, it stopped happening in my marriage, right? What so the sex it? stuff, right? The romance, you know, dead on delivery. You know, it just wasn't happening anymore. So I went through a long time. Because of you or him? I'm Scorpio. I'll just leave it there. Okay. So anyway, um, so anyway, it wasn't happening. I'm not going to blame him. It's, it, you know, contempt sets in and you hate each other. You love each other. You're best friends. But at the same time, you want to kill each other. You know, all that stuff's going on, right? So in any case, it's not his fault. It was, it, it's me. It's me. So after I was married, all that. So, and then when we split up, I thought this is what my article is kind of about. But I, I thought, wow, you know, now I'm going to. And it really took a long time for things to start happening. And, and nothing, I have not had one boyfriend, like significant relationship in eight years that I've been single. It's, 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 it's what's wrong? And like, I look like I should be able to have a boyfriend, right? No, not one real boyfriend. I've had a few. From the waist up or the waist down? <laughs> so, That's an inside joke, but So, I wouldn't let Louise shoot me from the waist down because I'm fat. But, but my article, the, the line is, acceptance of my body is the answer to a shit ton of problems today. But you still haven't answered the question. Okay. What are you looking so for what I, Okay, day? this is what I'm looking for. The truth. No, lie to me. Okay, so for me, the first thing is connection. I, the way to me to get, the way for me to be turned on is for somebody to make me think, make me laugh. First two things. So it's nice when this looks good and when this looks good, but the most important thing for me is somebody who's going to make me think and who's going to make me laugh. Okay, so let's assume they do that on the so first if day. they so so okay it do, first of all to get to the first date has been like I said most guys I never hear from we match I never get a note from them and if they're waiting for me they're gonna wait forever because I won't initiate but on Bumble the woman has to initiate so I'm forced to start a conversation but once I do I step back they've got to take it from there so most things never get offline. Most things never transfer to the real world. So let's say they do transfer to the real world and I meet somebody. I would say 95% of the time I haven't been interested when they've been, when we're face to face. In the times when I am interested, there is no timeline. If I'm attracted to somebody and it's on and we're, we're then I don't have a three date rule. Um, I'm slot. No, I'm not. I mean, but it's happened so infrequently. But I mean, if if, if it's just, um, it it doesn't. It hasn't happened often, at all. And and I have all these other hangups because of my body and I'm insecure and all of that stuff. So some a man really has to woo me. So you know, I have to be swooning. Um, but but if I really like somebody, why wouldn't I want to sleep with them? Of course, I want to sleep with them. Um, but if it's gonna, but the whole three date thing, um, if you if you've gotten to a third date with somebody, okay, this is really interesting. So the guy with the shoes, the Greek guy with the shoes. <laughs> so I didn't go home with him, and um, he it, that upset him that I didn't go home with him. And the what next, if he said, I just want you to shave my back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the next day he sent me a thing. I, I didn't hear from him the next day. He'd been in touch with me like every day for like five days. And the first day I don't hear from him is right after we meet. And I'm like, what, you know, why didn't you write to me today? And he said, because you're not that into me. And he sent me an I subscribe. I said, because I didn't go home with you. And he said, well, um, kind of. He said, I subscribe to this theory. And he sent me this article. Have you ever read Fuck Yeah or No? No. Okay, this is fascinating. I'm, and I'm going to stop talking after this because we have to know about you. But there's this thing where unless both people 
or a fuck yes about everything and all in, then it's a no, move on. That if, if in everything, in business, in romance, that if two, the two people are not equally excited about each other, move on, it's a no. And I think there's truth to that. When I think back, to, if you think about the relationships you've had and the women that you've had long-term relationships with, weren't you both in like right from the get-go? Absolutely. Like from the first thing. So I'm like, I thank you for passing that article to me because, because I realize it's really true. If like I don't feel in the first moment I want everything, it's a no. Well, I think you're very inspiring hearing these stories and it gives me hope. <laughs> so let's talk about Barry now. Let's talk about Mr. Katz instead of Ms. Katz. Let's talk about me. This is my early years. <laughs> It is a pathetic headshot. No, All right, so um, that's like from like 1979 or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Barry, okay, so you're a little kid. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Long Meadow, Massachusetts, which Long is an Meadow. Indian word that means Jews live here. <laughs> how, how big or small a town was it? 15,000. It's uh, between Springfield, Massachusetts, and the Connecticut line. And how did Jews end up there? That's a good question. It was a Jewish town. Um, really? That's the thing that's so fascinating for your audience. I don't know if you guys think about this a lot, but yeah. that's something that people never really talk about, is that they say in Kabbalah, if you ever study that, that we choose the family. Are you saying Kabbalah? Is that, is that the proper pronunciation, Kabbalah? It is tonight. Oh, okay. so, I never knew that. So, okay, go ahead. So, um, they say you choose the people, your, your parents, and where you grow up, but I... You know, we don't talk about that because we have, you know, life and careers are all about control. The more control you have of your personal life and your professional life, the happier you are and the less control you have over it, the least happy you are. But where we grow up... I don't up, believe that, we, that anybody has control of anything, but that's another issue. We can talk about that later. Am I talking to Michael Nesmith? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Nez. That was good. He could easily be out there right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love the monkeys. So do I. Uh, anyway. So the thing is, is so we don't have any control over where we're born into, our family, our, our brothers, our right. sisters, you know, that thing. And so that's the one thing that we really have to figure out and that we just have never, we, we can't do anything about it. Our parents are our parents. Right. If... For instance, if there was something that happened, let's say, let's say your parents found marijuana in your bag when you were 14. That never happened. Okay. <laughs> but let's say they did. Your parents would handle it. There could be a hundred different parents would handle it a hundred different ways. Absolutely. So you're, you're shaped by how these situations happen and you have no idea. And so that's the most fascinating thing. And what I love about uh, show business, to turn it around a little bit, is the fact that we do have control over what we do. It doesn't seem like we do. You we do. do. Okay, this is why you are an important guest for us, because you are somebody who does create a sense of, as an artist, no control. I mean, well, that's not true. Create my own show, right? That's a way to have that's control. That's why I said you inspired me. <laughs> you created the show. I saw... I get email after email. It's unbelievable. The, 
I don't even know how to work my social media, <laughs> yet I work with Dan Cook and yeah. where he pressed the button and, you know, he sold out Madison Square Garden. But for myself, I can't do stuff for myself. It's against what I feel. You know, it's kind of like when you say, ah, from the waist up, yeah. you know. And so I look at that and every artist has a chance to do something. So you started this from nothing. So when you started nothing, yeah. there's nobody, there's nothing. And now there's something. Look at people commenting on this. It's, a, it's amazing. And I started what I did from nothing. Right. Nobody helped me to do anything. I figured it out. And yeah, I needed help along the way. Everybody can mm -hmm. need help. But the fact Louise, that, I couldn't do it without Louise, that's yeah, for sure. But the fact is is that we do control things. Now artists out there, if there are artists a lot There of are a lot of artists yeah. out there. Louise who's out there, anybody else? So there? so the point Gigi. is is that so if you are an artist you might think, Well, I don't have control. I like what what happens if I do something and it doesn't work or or nobody watches it. And that can happen. You know, when I interviewed Judd Apatow for my podcast, I started off by saying to him, look, you know, when I think of you, mm -hmm. I think of failure. Because you, fa you failed eight times in a row before you made your first successful thing. So, but at least he controlled what he put out there. And if it failed, it failed. But he did it mm -hmm. until he got it going. Look, the last movie he did, he produced The Big Sick. Mm -hmm. You know, first movie that he's ever made that was nominated for an Academy Award. Probably if you add up all the movies he's done, it's the least grossing movie he's ever done. Right. But I guarantee he's probably the most proud of it. Right. But he chooses the things that he works on. And one of the things I wanted to share with your audience, which is so important and with mm -hmm. you, if you're in the comedy business per se, okay, think about it. Make a list of the greatest, biggest household name people who mm -hmm. started doing stand-up or still do stand-up. And they all have one huge thing in common. They all created for themselves. Now, there are about 5% exceptions. Eddie Murphy, he was on Saturday Night Live. Will Ferrell, when he started over and broke SNL, Mike Mott. So there are people who started, Eddie but they started had the launching before that. Pad. Eddie was in the, the, the laughter company, which was, I was in the laughter company The amazing company triplets that, with Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett. I well, believe. I was in the laughter company with Bob Nelson. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen Bob Nelson, just YouTube the football uh, routine. One of the greatest, Jiffy Jeff. One of the greatest yeah. things ever. But the point being is that what frustrates me about a lot of people in the business is they say, oh, yeah, pilot season. You know, I didn't get out that much or I, yeah, I didn't book anything this year. You know, that's because you're waiting for a fucking opportunity that somebody else wrote for you. This is so important what you're talking about right now about creating our own opportunities. Yeah. This is huge. Yeah. Okay, so for people that don't have, um, not everybody can host their own show. That's not their skill set, right? People have different skill sets. Let's say somebody's an actor, okay? Um, what can they do? Okay, if you're an actor and you wanna do something really extraordinary, first of all, you, want, you don't want to give up on the lane of the man. And when I say the man, there's working for the man and being the man. You don't have to give up on, on, on cowtailing or however you call it, or bowing down to the man. Mm -hmm. Aziz Ansari still booked Parks and Recreation as an actor and didn't write himself the part. 
But then you wrote Master of None, which right. again nominated for an Emmy and, um, and won an Emmy. Mm -hmm. So the point being is that, so if you want to just do both, you know, you're trying to expand your window and trying to be able to get yourself out there as much as possible in as many lanes, as many cylinders in your engine as possible. So what cylinders does an artist have in their engine? They can be a writer, they can be a, a comedy actor, they can be a dramatic actor, mm -hmm. they can do audio, radio, mm -hmm. podcasting, they can do literary in books where they can write their own book like my ex-wife did and her book went to number one on Amazon, self-published. So did yours. So they can do, um, they can write films, they can write half-hour sitcoms, they can do stand-up, they can do sketch, they can do YouTube videos. So there's a ton, there's 10 different cylinders or more that they can work on. But most artists are like, eh, I don't know if I'm good at that, I can't really do that, when I just focus it on that. And the, the window becomes this big. You want the window of opportunity to be as much as you can. So if you're an actor in the long-winded way of doing it, if you want to still maintain the ability to send something out to casting directors, the biggest thing I suggest, and this is kind of crazy, but it always works, you create your own reel. Mm -hmm. You shoot, direct, write, and star in your own Listen to this, everybody. This is very and so good. what happens mm -hmm. is, is let's say you want to be seen as, let's say you're an actor, you're 35, you're a guy, you want to be seen, so you write a one-minute scene where you're a heroin addict with a needle in your arm behind a dumpster, and maybe you're, you got a beard and you're scraggly. Then you, you, you shoot that, then you trim off your beard down to, you know, maybe scrub, scrub, scrub whatever you call this. <laughs> The and day, the morning, at, yeah, I don't know what that and is. And then, yeah. then you shoot maybe a scene where you're um, angry in traffic. You get into some situation where road rage, mm -hmm. and you shoot that. And then, you're saying that they should create their own scenes. They shouldn't take things that exist. No. Okay. No. Uh -huh. And so then you do one where you're romantic, and mm -hmm. you're like, maybe you cut your hair a different way, and then you're doing a romantic situation. So you change your look in these five scenes. If you don't feel comfortable writing them, mm -hmm. then invest back in yourself and find somebody you know in your community that can write a one-minute scene with you mm -hmm. and will do with you and will get credit for it. Find somebody in your community who you like their videos that they direct and they shoot and have them do it for you and with you, but credit them on the reel mm -hmm. so they know every reel that's sent out at the end that says, written by mm -hmm. this, created by, directed by, and their information, so you know you're helping them as well. Right. And you put that together and you shoot it like it's a great film or great television uh, series, and nobody knows. Nobody who said, Julie Ashton doesn't, isn't gonna care. What's that from, what was that from? She's just gonna look at it and you're gonna give people a tool that you email out to people and they always look at them. Everybody looks at this them. This is know, excellent advice. I know people say that people don't look at it. Everybody looks at something eventually. And you want a reel that you can give to people that you control. Again, control. You control it. And when they open it, it's almost like, 
the tagline underneath the reel is, take that motherfucker. <laughs> because you're bringing me in when you see this reel. There is no way you're not bringing me in when you see this reel. And, and the last thing I'll say is, and we're going to talk about a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. You have to be an A. So, like, I know you joke about yourself a lot and you say, oh, shoot me from the waist down. And up. Uh, up. So I'm <laughs> the waist up and I'm, I look a certain way and I'm this and I'm that. But when you do this podcast that you're doing right now, mm -hmm. I know that if I put uh, some kind of, you know, soundproof booth together and I asked you, Vicky, is your podcast an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F? I know you would say it's an A. You bet your ass That's I right. Would. So when you go out, with, or when you go out with the Greek guy, <laughs> you go out there, you don't go to the dinner or the drink thinking, okay, I'm a C, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat this Greek guy, I'm a C. <laughs> no, you go out like you're an A. Yes. So everybody who creates something... Mm -hmm. You have to make it a grand slam. You have to be, if that's the great part about shooting your own stuff. Like, let's say it's a take, let's say I said the heroin addict by the dumpster. Mm -hmm. Let's say you shoot the scene a hundred times and 99, you suck. <laughs> I mean, you were like, you were like Dustin Diamond trying to do Shakespeare. <laughs> and it's just horrible. But there's one take that is like, holy shit. That's the only one that anyone's gonna see. Right. So our business is designed to control Manipulate. our variables <laughs> and to literally mm -hmm. where we can fail 99 out of 100 times and still win. I wanna share a tiny story with you if you'll let Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was working with Whitney Cummings, again, probably the hardest working person I ever wow. knew in my life. Oh, when my, my stylist was on her show and she was writing direct, she was writing, producing, starring in. Whitney Cummings was the kind of person that when she was in the shower or the bathtub, her phone would be in a Ziploc bag and she'd be using it. <laughs> I mean, she was always wow. working, always creating. And when I was working with her, she had three shows that went, you know, Two Broke Girls, uh, Love You Mean It, and I'm Going Blind. Whitney, Whitney thank yeah. you. And so the fact is, is that always working, always moving forward. And, 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 and that's what I want to impress upon you. You have to go forward and you have to keep moving like that. And and work hard and you don't go out there like when she pitched her show to NBC mm -hmm. she didn't pitch it like oh this is a C this is a B she went in there like I am an A mm -hmm. and she took risks and one of the risks she took that I wanted to share with you that mm -hmm. I love this so we're waiting in the waiting room about to go in and the guy who was buying for NBC at the time was Jeff Engold mm -hmm. Now, just to let your audience know, mm -hmm. NBC isn't going to make deals with a lot of young artists. They're going to make deals with the heavy hitters, right. but they'll save one little amount of money, maybe fifty dollars to $100,000 for a person unknown, mm -hmm. one unknown. Mm -hmm. So there's really one slot for a real unknown. And so she knows that, I know that. 
but it's also about taking the risk. Mm -hmm. And sometimes risks pay off and sometimes they don't. So the guy walked in, he was a little bit late, he said, we were sitting on the couch, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit late, I, I didn't mean to be late, I'll, I'll be right with you. And she stands up, I'll never forget this, Jeff Engel was a, a good looking blonde guy, about six foot two, and she takes his hand, and she's like this, and she's right in his face like this, she's like, my God. This is the first thing she says to him. Look at you, you're like a member of Hitler's master race. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and my he God. just stood there and he was like smiled and I knew she sold the show. Oh Because my she had the God. balls to go up to him, fuck with him a little bit. Wow. And then when she went in the pitch, I don't even think the pitch mattered. I don't, he point. probably wasn't hearing a thing she said at that yeah. point. He was just And yeah. so and so the thing <laughs> That's is fabulous. but she could pitch ninety nine times and, and, and fail and succeed mm -hmm. once. And the other B story to that, and I'm sorry I'm taking so much time, but I no, think No, 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 this is great. This is so great. on the show, Two Broke Girls, mm -hmm. I remember her telling me about the casting process. Mm -hmm. And she was blown away by somebody that came in that had literally one credit that didn't even have a name on the credit. You know, like, you know... You know, they say like, oh, like oh, the I, did, I just wrote, I just yeah. wrote waiter or oh, transvestite right. hooker number four. Or right, right. And it was Beth Bear, is the blonde girl from Two Broke Girls, and she was coming in. She auditioned. She blew the room away. Okay, she'd been in town for three years. She'd auditioned for over a, a hundred projects. Wow. Booked one guest star that didn't even have a name. <laughs> so. They didn't know what to do, so they, they just put a, put her picture up, and then when they did the next round of people, they brought her back in to see if maybe she could recreate it. That's what it's all about as an act. That's all the director and writer want you to do, and the producers in the network. They want you to recreate what you did. They want to know that when you're on a sound stage, do it again, mm -hmm. do it again. Mm -hmm. Okay, adjust that, do it again. Mm -hmm. And so she came back in, did it better. They're like, oh my God, what, do, you know? So they brought her back again for the third round of callbacks. Did it again. So they decided to test her with all these household names. All these household names. And what happens is an actor, when you test, you have to sign like a 67 page contract that has your only one year through seven, and so you won't renegotiate. And then you go into the studio first, who's mm -hmm. doing it, whether it's Sony or CBS Productions or whatever, and you test against two, three, four other people, sometimes mm -hmm. one other person. So she tests the studio, they love her, they bring her to the network. It's the final stage of the game, final stage. In this town, all you have to do is fool people four times and you can be on television for seven years. You just go with the first audition, the casting director, the executive producers, the studio test and the network test and you're on television. So she goes to the CBS one, I believe it was Les Moonbez and Wendy Goldstein and uh, I forget who else was in there, Nancy Tellum maybe. She tests, after the tests are all over, it's like an E.F. Hutton commercial. Mm -hmm. They all turn around and look at the network mm -hmm. and I believe it was Les or Nancy Tellum or Wendy who said something to the effect of, well, you know, I mean, she has no credits at all but she's clearly the absolute best choice for this role and 
we have to go for it. Now keep in mind, they're spending 1.7, 2.5 million dollars on this. They don't want to recast the lead. Right, right. Okay, and so it just shows you that she kept going, she failed 99 out of 100 times, and now she's one of the biggest stars in the world. And that's Because she way. just kept, she kept doing it and she kept bringing her best. Repetition kept doing it. And that's what it's all about and that's what why we have this control that we can do. It doesn't feel like we have control. There's a lot of actors, a lot of comedians out there that feel like, my God, you know, what am I gonna do? I have no dates. And, you know, like this will, will happen a lot with comedians. It's mm -hmm. like, cause you know, the improv has like 20 different clubs, let's say, mm -hmm. and you rely on those 20 clubs. But they could say, you know, we're gonna take our time booking this. And then your calendar's empty and you feel out of control. Mm -hmm. But if you have power as an artist and you built up your audience, it doesn't matter. You book a one-nighter in San Francisco, a one-nighter in New York, a one-nighter in Florida, and you bring your audience into that place. You cut the best deal you can and you'll probably make more money than you would have made in the other places. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people are doing. You look at somebody like like Willie Barsena, for instance, who did The Tonight Show, God knows, 30 different times, has done four or five hour specials. Mm -hmm. He was tired of waiting for people to give him dates. Mm -hmm. So now he just runs the arenas himself, wow. and he does the shows himself, and he packs them, and he makes more money than he ever made, because he is in control. I'm not saying it's for everybody, mm -hmm. but you know, some people, <coughs> excuse me, some people who have their a huge audience still want to work with other people. Like you look at Phil Rosenthal, like you said in his podcast, Phil has a huge audience. Mm -hmm. He elected to do his podcast with uh, Mike Wild. Mike Wild? David. David Wild, I'm sorry. And so Bert Kreischer has a huge podcast. He elected to go to Bill Burr's network and Al Madrigal's network. Did he need it? But sometimes you feel comfortable and you, 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 you don't mind giving a little bit of your money away to have some comfort. And so, Okay, so let's talk about another scenario. Let's say there's a writer, an actor, a comedian who doesn't have a following yet, but they've got the goods. They know they've got the goods. Either as a writer they've got the goods or they've, they've written a pilot that they know, it, but they don't have, they're not connected. They don't have the audience yet. How does an artist who's got the goods, who's got the talent, build the audience? Well, these days it's a really different scenario than it was. So, if you're a writer who really believes that your project is extraordinary, mm -hmm. you can have it shot on iPhones. I have a client, Owen Smith. Uh, he's a producer on Blackish, but he's also a stand-up. He wanted to do an hour special. Nobody was giving him an hour special. So he bought 10 iPhones at the Santa Monica Apple store <laughs> and shot the first ever special with iPhones and then returned them the next day. Oh my, oh God! my God! Oh my God! And so we can do anything oh we want. Oh my God! That is so, um, what's the word? When you're Ballsy. industrious. When yeah, you're... I mean, it's, it's like, I look at it like, maybe it's corny, but they, you know, a no is to me is just like a temporary yes. It always is. It's like I'm always gonna hear the no. I I've sold 37 hour specials out of 38, 
every special almost. It's like, no, no, we don't want it. No, I, I showed my interns, they hated it. And I just will keep going and hammering away until they say yes, because I think that that's the way to do it. And Persistence and resilience is yeah. so important. Like I was, you know, I was out with a, I used to talk about the dating thing. Last night I was out for somebody's birthday of a friend of mine, a woman is very beautiful. And I'm there at this place, it's like 12.30, I go to the bathroom, I come back from the bathroom, there's a guy who's just like, hey, come on, say yes, say yes, whatever, wow. say yes. And I just sit back down and I'm like, I'm like, I- What do you do? What do you do? I said to the guy, I, I can't believe you, you're so persistent. And he looked at me and says, well, isn't that the way I'm, isn't that the way the world works? Did it pay off? I said, well, do you think it's going to pay off with this woman who's my friend? Yeah. And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to keep trying even though you're here. Wow. And so what happened? We kept trying and trying and trying. And I wasn't a cock blocker. I was just, I told him, look, I'm not with this person. I, you know, you, you know, please do whatever. And I asked her if she wanted me to leave. She said, no, just stay here and observe. And he, but he gave up after a while. And he, he did. Went, and he went away and I, I ran after him. And I told him to write his number down and put it in her pocketbook. And at least you, at least you've given your last opportunity to see if maybe in a weak moment she's going to call you back. That was really nice of you. Hey, listen, if I can help anyone get laid in this <laughs> that podcast, was, that was really other than nice. myself, I'd be that was, that's, that's very love. But this wasn't somebody you were having a romance with. This was just a friend. No, I'm okay. not, no. But I love her and I, I, she's, she's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's. That's a pretty crazy story. All right, so this is giving, you've given a lot of practical advice. No, I like this, and I, and I think the thing that works for anybody, no matter what their craft, no matter what they're doing, persistence, resilience, not taking no for an answer, just keep going, keep going, keep going. I mean, if I was thinking about it, if I could had a nickel for every person that told me something like I was doing isn't gonna work, yeah. um, I'd have a lot of nickels, a That's lot of nickels. People love to, I mean, it's easy to say no. It's hard to say yes. You say yes to the Greek guy and your ankles are in two different zip codes. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta work, you gotta do some things to him. You gotta like touch it. You say no, it's easy. We got, I go home and I don't hear the clicking of the shoes. It's easy for a net, network executives and studio executives they're programmed to say no. It's simple. It's like, if I say no, I keep my job. Nothing happens. You know, I don't fail. It's great. I'll, I'll say yes to the safe stuff. But you know what's interesting, Barry? When, when I first got out to L.A., I uh, gave my, my, my ex was, uh, you know, in the business. He was a TV writer. Anyway, I, I love, just... I love your ex. I, I, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, of course he is. He was with you for 20 years. You don't, you don't, you don't stay together. This is another thing that people in the audience don't really... You talk about 20 years and it ends and this... 20 years is like... I mean, in this town, is that's like 50 in dog years. I mean, it's incredible accomplishment. It's yes, it is. And we, we have two incredible kids. So we, 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 did a good, we did a good thing. We did a lot of good things. Um, but anyway, so I, when we got out here, I, I had not been, I, I was a performer, I wasn't a writer, I was a rock and roll promoter, but anyway, I, I, I optioned a music reality show like as soon as I got out here. First pitch meeting, walked in, in five minutes I had an option, right? And there was a lot of, and we were in development, all this stuff, and it didn't go for political reasons, whatever. But 
that it didn't happen. It didn't go to show, right? But it's had like two other lives. You know, every once in a while, somebody will show some interest. Now I know, as sure as I'm sitting here, that it's still a saleable idea, and I have not. It's not dead yet. This is something I will keep resurrecting until it ends up on the air. I will not give up on it. Because like, if I can talk one person into it and then two other people, then there's something there, right? It deserves to happen. And the biggest advice I would have for you is mm -hmm. that when you do go out with it, mm -hmm. don't tell people that you right. stopped it 20 years ago. Just well, it's like, this is, this, my new, this is my yeah. new idea. Right. Yeah, that's a very good advice. That's very good advice. So, but the, but I guess what my point is that it's about never giving up. It's about never giving up on anything. Oh, no, that's not what I was going to say. My, that's not what my point was. My point was, when I walked into that you room... You always touch your guests. You, but you were touching me before, so I thought it was okay to do it. Okay. No, but, I love it. You, no, can, you so, can touch me where you want. So... From the waist so, <laughs> See, we have to... Anyway. So, what, what I wanted to say is, there's the other thing where when something is easy, it's meant to be. The, that if something... There's something I believe in that too. It's like I walked into that room, and and it ha and 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 it, he got it. Yes, I'm in. Whereas other things that I've had to, which I haven't given up on. I mean, like for example, this this show. I believe this show belongs on Facebook Watch. And I went to a young whippersnapper, up and coming guy who has the power to kind of make a deal like that. Was he Greek? He was not. He was Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> no, no, I didn't meet him in person. What if the guy? What if one of the guys says, "I want to buy your show. I'm going to sign a deal with you." But and, I then, and then he walks like, away and says, like, <laughs> "You say no fucking way. I'm not doing a deal with you." Okay, I, he can buy my show. No, as long as I don't have to go to bed with him, it's fine. All right, just check it. So, um, so no, so so wait. Now we're, I forgot what I was saying. I'm so sorry. You said to him, "It belongs on Facebook Watch." Okay, so and then, so he he basically said because I was saying. Facebook is our generation. We are the people that are on Facebook. Facebook is not about kids. Facebook Watch is now putting on all these shows of 20, they're trying to get all the YouTube stars and all the influencers. Those are not the people. My kids don't go on Facebook. Facebook is not their medium. It's Snapchat and Instagram, right? They're YouTube. trying to lure them. But, but it's not going to work. What I'm saying is our, our generation, not you, you're busy, but we are on Facebook every day for a good part of the day. Our audience is Facebook, and so the gatekeepers are saying, no, you're, this, you're, you guys are too old. No, that's not the kind of programming we want to put on. It's not even the Facebook people. It's the gatekeepers before you get there. It's the people in your position, the managers, who don't even want to walk into them. But Vicky, they will say yes when these Facebook lives get oh. hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views, more so than the ones on their on their network okay, so and now, then they'll be like, okay, we got to put this on. Okay, so let's talk about how that happens. I don't have hundreds of thousands of views. The best, the best I ever did, I think, was 11,000. Um, how do, I mean, and you see what kind of promotion I do. It's, you get it, my stuff in the mail all the time, as does half the world. I love how you said only 11,000. It's like, oh, I filled Staples Center. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's true, right? I, but I, that's but that's that my best, and that was with Eddie Ojeda of Twisted Sister, and he promoted it to Twisted Sister fans, so he helped. Um, but we've had six thousand people live with us when I've done Women Who Write and and things like that. And yes, I say to anybody who's going to come and do Women Who Write on my podcast, hey, 
You're gonna go to a show, you're gonna do it for three, 400 people, you're gonna to come to my living room, you're gonna do it for a couple thousand. So, you know, right away, that's that's kind of exciting. But I, I can't get the kind of numbers that those YouTube influencers are getting. Now, you see what you just did? I said can't. I'm gonna take that word back. I haven't. Vicky. I haven't. Vicky. Yes. Vicky. You see what you did? You just you just set a bad example. For, I did. I'm know, sorry. I take I take it back. It's like that's what kills everybody. Doubt is the biggest. See, but thing. I do believe that I can. That's the but that's so see, that's then why the, did you just say I that? I don't know why. I haven't, but I do believe that I can. You got eleven thousand for one. That's 11,000 more than 99.9999999% of the people in the world. Byron Allen, who I interviewed, I love this when he, he talked about people used to come up to him and shit on him. Like, what's, what are those shows you have on the air, you know, those car shows? What do they get, like a one rating? Uh, one rating, come on, Byron. Why do you do it so one rating? And he'd get in his car and he think to himself, that's a one rating, but I'm a fucking millionaire. One rating is pretty good. One rating is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Remember Will Rogers a long, long ago, he was famous for this quote, if 1% of the people like you, you're a superstar. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. If 1% of the people like you in the world today, you are the biggest star in the world by a hundred thousand times. You can be, you could, you could be some an artist who one percent of 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 the world knows, and you are a huge star. Mm -hmm. And that's what people don't realize. Mm -hmm. It's like it's it's. It's but a, the monetization is challenging. For, for somebody like me, the monetization is challenging. Are you in this for monetization? I have never been in anything for the money. It's never been the All thing right, that's then. driven so, me. But I still, I'm a single mom. My daughter's at NYU. I gotta make the money. You know, I, I, money's a reality. And I don't think you're gonna, right now, like, uh, be able to support NYU from, uh, you know, this particular podcast. Well, I'm but, talking about the one we're on right now. I think maybe you could maybe buy one of her lunch money or something. But, I'm not but, buying shit with this. But it's gonna but it's gonna build. It's gonna build. You're only doing a two can you tell me anything, can anyone in your audience tell me anything that you've ever done for two years where you are like an expert and everything's perfect? Who who knows how to do that? I think the only people who do that are like the I really believe there's one group of people who can do it. They can bypass everything. Like comedians, there's no comedian you know of that's a household name. That didn't and, have to do their That had time. a syndicated show on television that hadn't been doing it in 10 years. Right. Maybe the Wayans brothers, but Sean, I don't know if he was considered doing comedy then or not. I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. So two years, there's only one population that can bypass everything. Sometimes singers, songwriters, there's something that happens. It's like, I don't know if there's a, they were a something in another life. I don't know what you believe in, but there's no way that like you look at three years ago or so on America's Got Talent, Grace Vanderwall, she's got an ukulele and she's just standing up there singing and she's 12 or 13 years old and she beats everybody. There's no, and she's writing all original songs and people are going crazy. So that, 
I mean, that's not a product of 10 years of work. I mean, it's like there's a natural gift. There's a kid, Ethan Borgnick, who does charity work all over all these concerts all over. And I met him on a plane when he was four. He's insane. That's and, I, I don't know and who he played, is. He, he played piano on The Tonight Show when he was four. And his parents said oh he was playing when he was one. He was playing oh like my. Chopin and oh all these different God. things. He's from another planet. So it's these nice. things don't, you know, in music, I believe that you can bypass I see. things. Because, you know, in, in, when you think about it, all you need is one particular thing that you can lightning in the bottle you look at somebody like Lucas Graham the seven years song mm -hmm. you know you have one song like that that you write that that speaks to people mm -hmm. and the content and you're you're off mm -hmm. but you, the thing is it's like the shoes you have to follow it up right or else you stay where you are and you're a one-hit wonder Although I know some musicians that are, I was a rock and roll promoter, I know guys that have written some of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. They have the most unbelievable voices, they're incredible players, they are sidemen to rock stars and they play stadiums, but for their own stuff, like a friend of mine, Steve Conti, is making it right now. He's, you know, like my contemporary, a little younger than me, but, you know, he's played with everybody and now on Little Steven's Underground Garage because of Little Steven. He had like the coolest song in the world, you know, a, f a couple of times, and now he's finally getting recognition as himself. But took him a he didn't have like that, and he's killer. But I think I think that lightning in a bottle thing. I don't know. I think a lot of that is. I think it's destiny when when that kind of crazy stuff happens for people because there are a lot of talented people that nobody knows about. There are, but the thing about the if you look at music mm -hmm. and, and comedy and. To me, there's a, I'd say there's three live performance art forms that, uh, that for singular people mm -hmm. that, that are the biggest, and that's uh, music, and I'm talking for one singer song right. or a band, mm -hmm. comedy, mm -hmm. and magic. Magic? Magic are, you know, the, the singular most profitable and successful person in entertainment as an entertainer on stage is David Copperfield by a hundred times. David Copperfield wow. made close to $900 million last year and did, what? did 634 shows. Gabe, I'm so glad you're on to the magic now after our marriage. Wow. 600. This guy's 60 years old. He owns 11 islands. And he's doing 634 shows a year. Oh, and, I had no idea. And so, but the thing is, one of the things that's fascinating about all these three things, mm -hmm. uh, and your audience will, will get into it when I start talking about it, is like, imagine any profession in the world that didn't have a woman who was a household name, whether they be a lawyer, a doctor, a motivational speaker, a talk show host, whatever it is, the CEO of a company. In magic, there's never been a household name female magician in a century, probably more than a century. So it's a profession that's very difficult, but once you break in, there's probably only five to seven household name magicians, but once you get in the club, you're, you're golden, you're there, but it takes really, really hard work. Wow. And so... I'm, I'm, 
for all you young girls out there, I would say start studying magic. I like the odds on this. I see, what's happening is all the male magicians are making the female magicians disappear. I love this though because now somebody's got to prove you wrong. Somebody's got to come yeah. up and do this. Yeah, so, so magic, you can work hard, you can make a living. Mm -hmm. A lot of magicians make a great living. Right. A lot of them make a great living, but I'm talking about the making. Right. But the point being is that you work hard, you do it, you make it happen. And there's a lot of magicians. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make it, though. Mm -hmm. In music, it doesn't appear like it's hard to make it because there's so many musical artists. You look at the Billboard 200 chart mm -hmm. and you look at it, and there's 200 artists. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, there's a lot of artists that make it. Mm -hmm. But there's exponentially more musicians and singer-songwriters than any other thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to make it. But the thing is, is that you can make it. Mm -hmm. You can go on a show and make it. You can do your own stuff like Bo Burnham did musical comedy. But he did it from his bedroom. He came huge. You can do it. Mm -hmm. Comedy is the strangest profession, I think, in the world. And I'll tell you why. It's because... Even the comedians who are watching this, they'll be the first to admit they could count the extraordinary genius comedians on half a hand. Right. Half a hand. You can count the geniuses in music on many hands. Right. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of geniuses out mm -hmm. there. Some that just died, some that didn't. But in comedy, who do you have who you think are, you know, I'll just go out on a limb and say on my own and, and if people don't agree with me, whatever. So the working comedians today, if I were to say who are Well, Seinfeld, you, you, can't, you can't not, Seinfeld has to be in that group. Yeah, and but you know what I'm going to say here is Jerry, uh, if he were here. Uh-huh, he wouldn't include himself. He wouldn't include himself. Right. And... Even if there was the proverbial true serum in his veins, I don't think he'd include himself. Mm -hmm. He'd say that he worked hard and really you know, honed down the craft of the observational humor, and he really put it together in a way that nobody else could. But I don't think he would have put himself on the mountain. I agree. But he would put Chris Rock on the mountain. Yeah. He would put Chappelle on the mountain. Mm -hmm. There's a chance... I can't speak for him that he put Jim Jeffries on the mountain. Mm. And, you know, and there's these people like that who, when you watch them, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe what's happening. You know, and... I and, used to feel that way about Louis C.K. Yeah, well, Louis C.K. is the other person he would put on that. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about Louis in a second because I think it's important to talk about Louis. But he would say Louis. Mm -hmm. Louis C.K., I want to show you something real quick, and I don't want to uh, take up too much time with your audience because it's really important. But I was in this, uh, I was in the Bel Air Hotel yeah. having a drink the other day. I'm, I'm looking to see who's with us. So. And I took this photo. Wait, you have to show this the camera. Is, this is a photo. I don't know if you can see that or not. Here, Louise will put it up by the... So they had this huge poster in the Beverly Hills Hotel. Yeah. Uh, and of Steve Jobs and... Um, the first, the first oh. Mac. That's okay. Um, yeah. And uh, and so uh, let me just get it back. Oh, because I thought it was David. Somebody Cumberland. just liked it. It got a. <laughs> and so Louis C.K. had this first Mac. Louis C.K. was always creating, always writing. 
He was like a Louis. He was like a Whitney Cummings with uh, a different anatomy. Mm -hmm. Always creating. Always I knew writing, him back in. The, I always mean, performing. not knew him, but I, I mean, I was around when he was. Yeah. And you know, and one of the hardest things that I think about in terms of what's happening with all the craziness is that it's horrible what he did. He would sit here and say it's horrible what he did, and obviously the women. There's no. It, it's horrible what happened. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I always look at that is interesting is that this guy in the community was a guy who was well-loved, well-respected, gave enormous opportunities to women and men, would produce shows that he wasn't in, even mm -hmm. some of his greatest shows, which the, the season finale, uh, I believe was called Fat Girl on Louis. He wrote that scene for that actress, and her name escapes me. If you haven't it was seen great. it, I saw it. Yeah, you go on YouTube. It's mm -hmm. a seven minute and thirty two uh, uh, second clip called "Fat Girl," and they're walking on the promenade of New York uh, by the Statue of Liberty. And I'll even say this and put a pin in this for a second: if you're somebody who doesn't think that you can create and do anything, watch that scene. One camera, one take. The guy wrote it. He produced it, he directed it, and he gave himself only 15% of the lines mm -hmm. and gave her everything. And it's an incredibly powerful scene. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they might have taken 12 takes, but they got one good one. Mm -hmm. And it should show you, and that's one third of an episode of television. Mm -hmm. So you can do anything, one camera, one take, if you just write great stuff. But anyway, Louis, so this happens to him and um, well, let me rephrase. This doesn't happen to him. He creates. What ah, thank you, to him. thank you for changing that language. So he creates what happens to him. Absolutely. And that amount of time that he did that in his life, when he was in a room doing what he was doing, mm -hmm. how many times he did it, the time could probably add up to about an hour of his life, maybe an hour of his life. And all the rest, you know, he's a good, great father, maybe a great husband, a great friend, a great associate, a person who created so many jobs for so many different people and entertained so many people and made so many people happy. But one hour or two hours of his life where he makes a horrible error in judgment mm -hmm. and he has to take a seat. And he has to say, you know, look, I gotta ride this out, and I, I apologize, but I gotta get out. You know, I gotta get back. And and so now it could be argued to the audience. Well, do you say that, Barry, when somebody uh, has two drinks at a party and they run somebody over and kill somebody, and that's one minute of their life, and then the rest they're great. And, and that's a good point. I, and so, and thank so, you for bringing and, that and up. And so yeah. I, I play devil's advocate with myself. And, and the women that uh, were with Louie and had that happen, horrible. But I just feel like the fact is is that when something bad happens that's maybe not as extraordinarily horrible as Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. thing, I think sometimes we have to look at things and just say, you know, even the women, I can't speak for the women that were with him. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they feel. They probably just feel violated and horrible. But even they... I would hope wouldn't say, what would your punish? What would they say if they said, what should Louis' punishment be? Mm -hmm. Is has he gone through enough shame, or would they say, hey, 
I want them out of the business for three years. I want them in comedy jail for three years or whatever it is. What's the appropriate amount of time for what he did? But the fact is, is that in his case, he's meant a lot to the comedy community. And it's like the, the women on the Today Show. It was so horrible that day when Matt Lauer was mm. basically, and they were like, you know, these women were in tears because they knew him a certain way. Mm. They didn't know that man. Mm -hmm. And so they knew him for all the joy and mm -hmm. amazing uh, capital that he brought to millions of people who watch. I, I don't think you want to compare Matt Lauer to Louis C.K. because I think Matt Lauer, from everything I've heard, more of a pick, like a whole different kind of yeah, level. Yeah, but I'm just pick, saying, I'm just saying, the people in his life were crying yes. because they didn't. But he, the thing about Louis, th this is what I think is going to happen with Louis. If Louis, I, I believe Louis is really smart, and I don't mean manipulative smart. I think he's just, re I, I think he is ultimately an empathetic, sensitive. He has daughters. He has daughters. I think what Louis is going to do, and if he's smart, what he will do is he will he will wait out some time. And then I think he's going to do something creative and artful that's going to shine a light on what he did. And that's going to be funny. And that's going to be smart. And he's going to take the heat, but he's also going to make art with it. Make good art, that Neil Gaiman thing. That's what I think Lou... I, I don't think Lou... Kevin Spacey is done. He's finished. He's never going to have another career. I think Louie will. Well, I think... Um... The world is is very forgiving, and uh, mm -hmm. look, you know, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Evidence was there. One of the most loved guys out there. He did what Louis did. Um, granted, the woman at the time was a willing participant, mm -hmm. but you know it was bad. Mm -hmm. Our president in office now. What is it? Forty-one women. Don't I'm just saying that, so, a lot of people in the country are forgiving of him. I'm not saying I am or you are, but the fact is, is he's still in office. It's unbelievable. He's Teflon. It's unbelievable. No one else would be able to still be in office. I don't know what this And is. you know, this is a metaphor also for the show, and I, I want to share, because when mm -hmm. Trump got elected, uh, my kids, who are 12 and 13, they were sad and they were upset. Now, I didn't know they were so involved in politics mm -hmm. or whatever it is, and, and I'm not going to say that I have a dog in any race or a pony in any race or whatever. I mean, you got me mixed up with the dogs. The dog and pony. Uh, so, but the thing is, is that this is what I said to him after he got elected. I said to my kids, I said, listen, I want you to, I want you to listen to me, okay, mm -hmm. and just hear me out. I said, this is a metaphor for your life and what you know you can accomplish in your lifetime. So I said, let me explain this to you. Every talk show monologue for a year was shitting on this guy. Every news channel shitting on the guy. Well, except for Fox. Except for Fox. Every sketch show mm -hmm. shitting on this guy. Every radio program, every Bill Maher kind of show shitting mm -hmm. on this guy. Everybody, former presidents in the Republican Party mm -hmm. were saying we're not going to vote for him. And I told my kids, and he still won. Facebook, Russia. I said, I said he cheated that, on so many different levels. Yeah. So I don't know if it's and, he's, and, you, and, you, and I said to them, imagine if you went to school. I said, just imagine this. You go to school, and every day you go to school, there's 20 kids who say, you're ugly. You suck. 
You're stupid. You're a fucking idiot. You're a loser. You're never going to make it. Go fuck yourself. Every day you go to school. Would you want to go to school with your head high and believe you're a winner? No. Most people wouldn't. But he figured out a way to somehow remove that chip in his brain and just keep going because forward. Because he's a total egocentric. He's, he's insane. He is pathologically insane. And he might be pathologically insane, but the fact is, is that whatever happened, you know, the Russians didn't fix the polls when it came to the primaries. Mm -hmm. And he just wiped the floor up with everybody. So the fact is, is that he knows how to win and he doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't take negativity for an answer. And he might be in his house or his wherever he is and be depressed. But he never shows you that he's depressed. He never shows you that he's a loser. He never shows you that he's getting crushed. You just, you just brought, you, you're, you're talking about something that, that would be really helpful uh, for this audience. You're a manager. You handle artists. What does it take? How, how do people, I'm thinking that first of all, people have to present themselves to you as a winner. <laughs> people have to present themselves. I'm thinking that one thing that's gonna turn you on as a manager is somebody that comes in with confidence and with that comes in with an A game. I, I am an A, right? So tell, tell me what it takes. What, how does somebody get your attention? What are you looking for? What works for you? What hasn't worked? Who's, who's gotten in even if they didn't have everything in place? Like, can you, can you talk about some of that? Of course. I mean, look, in stand-up comedy, mm -hmm. there's very few artists that are, like, insanely brilliant and tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And comedy is about the truth. Mm -hmm. But unbelievably... 99% of the comedians that are successful don't tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Chris Rock tells the truth. Mm -hmm. Chappelle tells the truth. Louis told the truth. Louis told the truth. Bill Maher tells the truth. Mm -hmm. um, Jim Jeffries tells the truth. Mm -hmm. But some people, they don't tell the truth. They're entertainers. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're not successful because there's different lanes. Mm -hmm. Look, Carrot Top takes so much abuse it's incredible to me. Everything he does is original. The guy creates these original things. If you study a Carrot Top special, you will see that he does about 40% stand-up. He's like, just like Gallagher. Gallagher could do an hour on an ankle. He would, Gallagher was an, is a genius. Mm -hmm. I know people don't look at Gallagher as a genius mm -hmm. because of the props right. and the watermelon. Mm -hmm. But Gallagher wanted to pander to the uh, type of audience that wasn't as smart, and he also wanted to give it to the people who were smart. Mm -hmm. But in order to make it so, the people that might not, like, if you look at somebody like Dane Cook, Dane was an incredible, I worked with Dane for 17 years, and I did all the tours, produced all the albums with him, the movies, and Dane was an incredible performer. I mean, he was like a rock star when he did a comedy show, and he knew how to work the crowd, and he could do it. And he had a formula that probably wasn't as well respected. His formula was, 
in my humble opinion, this mm -hmm. was his formula, you okay. might agree or not agree. I'm gonna do one third of my comedy is gonna be silly. Hey, have you ever gotten in a, a taxi cab and you're so drunk you think the fare is the time? You know, it's just silly, fun, mm -hmm. you know, it's not breaking new ground, right. whatever. Mm -hmm. Then he'd do 33% that was Generation Y, hard, edgy, sexual content comedy where you're talking about the relationships between men and women and, you know, whether the, the routine where he he gets up in the middle of the night and he goes in the kitchen, he's hungry, and he realizes he has an erection. There's cashews on the counter. He puts one on the top of his uh, manhood, flicks it back, pops it up, gets it in his mouth. Again, sexual content, Not you're not going to... Uh, compare that to Chappelle's bit about the crack baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then he'd write these incredible pieces like the atheist routine where it was like a 10 or 12 minute routine about how he ran into a guy who was an atheist who sneezed in New York City and how he said, God bless you. And the guy turned on him and said, don't say God bless you. And it was this, you know, I'm an atheist, and it, and it was this whole long routine where it ended up, uh, that, I'm gonna spoil it, but it ended up after like 10 minutes where the guy is like saying, listen, I'm telling you, don't ever say God bless you. I believe that we're one with the universe. I believe we're like a seed in the ground and we become a tree and the tree just floats around and we're in the wilderness as this big tree. And then the end of the bit is, you know, uh, I can just imagine this guy in my mind where you, these, these people go into the forest and they cut down the tree and they cut down the tree and they cut down the tree, they pull it down, they put it through the grinder of that, that thing that chips the wood and then they pound it down and make it into paper and then they make a Bible out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this like routine that's just like so special, mm -hmm. so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll never forget that routine on the special at Boston Garden. It just, it just, you can't watch it and think that bit is not great. It was mm -hmm. just a, tremendous. Mm -hmm. But he, he used, he, he used uh, those three areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, which made him uh, really appeal to a large group of people. Mm -hmm. Whereas people like Louis and Aziz Ansari and Jim Jeffries and Bill Maher, they decided to go and find their lane, mm -hmm. one lane, mm -hmm. and ride that lane. Mm -hmm. And Bill Burr is another example. Dave Chappelle, I think, said that Bill Burr at the Boston Comedy Club, <coughs> which, which I... Judd Apatow and Pete Holmes have uh, recreated for the show Crashing on HBO that I used to own. Um, he saw Bill perform and he was blown away by Bill and he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Bill, you're, you're going to make it. You're really going to make it, but it's going to take you longer. But if you just keep doing what you're doing, keep doing that, telling the truth and it's going to happen for you. And, and sometimes it's an anomaly how it happens. And, you know, Bill Burr, if he were here, would tell you he struggled for a long time. And how he broke was a very unique thing that happened. It was fate. He was doing a show with Opie and, Opie and Anthony and mm -hmm. Don Marrera. 
in Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. Dom went in all the comics were going on getting booed. And Dom Herrera got booed before Bill. Wow. Uh-huh. And dude, just mercilessly, the worst boo you can imagine possible. And Bill goes on. He's supposed to do 20 minutes. And he's getting booed. And he's just, you know, about eight minutes in of just taking the abuse. He's like, you know, fuck you guys. You boo, <coughs> you boo Dom Herrera. Fuck you guys. 12 minutes. I'm going to do all my 12 minutes. And then he starts shitting on the Philadelphians. You people bow down to a statue of Rocky, an inanimate <laughs> object that isn't even a human being, and that's your biggest star. Fuck you. 11 minutes. And then he just kept going. But somebody in the crowd was filming it with a, a camera wow. or a YouTube or, or like a, you know one of their phones or whatever. Mm-hmm and put it up on YouTube, and I think it has probably over 200 million views. Holy shit! And then he started selling out theaters, started selling out arenas, and he became huge. And, and, and it all it took was for the, you know, the world to see him in that way, and it happened. Okay, so I, this, is, this is a bring, brings me to a really good point, because I've been talking to people about this issue about the lightning in a bottle thing and how those moments happen. Now, do you believe that those are moments that happen because somebody just keeps chipping away, chipping away, being who they are, being who they are? Because I don't think you can manufacture the lightning in the bottle moments. You have like, to be ready when the world's ready. Right, because somebody said to me, you just need to have like a Hugh Grant who just slept with a hooker on your show. Like in other words, for my show to break and to, 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 make that, that, to put the lightning in the bottle, I need to create, I st- you can't create that moment. Jay Leno didn't create that moment. That moment happened. Well, he was good every night, but that night everyone was watching. Well, I, I, I love Jay Leno, but I'm not going to get into what I think. But, this is, what, but this is what Jay Leno did and his producers did. Every talk show wanted Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. There was one winner. Mm-hmm. Jay's show. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, no, I thought I think Hugh Grant was scheduled to be on the show. It just so happened. Hugh Grant could have canceled the show. He could have. He could have. I mean, Jay was is Jay Jay is brilliantly resourceful and resilient and and smart. But you just said something, and I want you to say it again, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. That thing. I said you have to be ready when the world's ready. Mm-hmm. You have to be ready when the world's ready, mm-hmm. and that's a really important thing. That's one of the most profound things you can ever say because you always have to be ready. You don't know what's going to happen. I share something with you that's kind of almost I'm smiling about it, but. So I, I have this thing, you ask me how I know or what I know, I don't know what it is, but I can just shake a person's hand who I don't know, who's a comedian, and I know if something's gonna happen. When I met Chappelle, I shook his hand, I'd never seen him before, mm. and I told him he was gonna be one of the biggest stars in comedy, and he was gonna change the face of the world wow. comedy, and that I wanted to manage him, and, 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 and so that's always been my thing. And so I met this, uh, Believe it or not, this ten-year-old kid with his mom, and he was not actually. I'm sorry, he was nine when I met him. Mm-hmm. And I just shook his hand. There was something about this kid. I, I I felt something about this kid. And I told the mom, I said, "Listen, I think if you allow me to get involved in this career, I think I can make something happen. I don't know how, I don't know why, but shit's going to happen. I know what's going to happen." And he'd done like one commercial maybe or something like that or a couple of commercials and that's it. And that kid um, tested the first thing that he had going that I was on board for Mm -hmm. was he tested for the lead role 
in Spielberg's latest film. He went up against one kid. He didn't get it. But kids don't feel the pain that adults do. They're like, eh, whatever, I didn't get it. But he didn't get it, but I knew something was happening. And then wow. I sent his stuff to uh, this agent that I know, uh, work with Amanda Seyfried, who's an incredible agent named Abby Bluestone. I never worked with Abby before. I've never even had a conversation with Abby before. And I reached out to her, I just had an instinct that she and I would work well together. And I said, I had this kid, I know you don't represent kids, but I'm telling you, this kid's gonna be a huge star, he's gonna do great stuff. And she wrote me back, she said, Barry, I never worked with you, but if you say that, then we're gonna work together with this kid. Wow! And so since then, he's booked 12 different jobs, not shitty jobs, like the Mick, uh, Legends of Tomorrow, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Suburbicon, and now what I want to tell you about, about the... You What's have his to, name? You have, his name is Jack Fisher. And you said, say it again. You have to be ready when the world's ready. That's right. So he's testing for a Shia LaBeouf movie called Honey Boy, which Shia wrote and is producing about his father and his relationship with his son. He's going to be playing his father. And, uh, and, J and Jack tested for this. He went in. He went in twice. And the director and, and Shia said, I want you to come back and hang with us. Uh, just hang with us, mm -hmm. hang out with us. Now, when somebody says they're gonna hang with you, your natural instinct is, hey, we're just gonna hang out. Netflix and chill, we're gonna hang out. Mm -hmm. You feel it's gonna be what they tell you it's gonna be. But if you're an actor or anybody in this business, you have to be prepared for whatever can happen. And you have to know those sides inside and out and memorize them. You have to be prepared for everything that comes at you. This kid's 10, okay? So the mother is very shrewd, and we talk about this a lot, you know, that Vince Lombardi quote. If you're uh, early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late, and if you're late, don't bother fucking showing up. <laughs> I love that. And so his mom has this thing we talk about, and she goes early. She gets him there early to things, just in case there's something mm -hmm. that you can see. And so they get there, and he thinks he's going to hang out with Shia and the director. Mm -hmm. There's another kid in the waiting room, and he hears some stuff in the other room. And Shia breaks, smashes open the door, and, and just is yelling in the middle of this waiting room, Fuck you! Fuck you! You're not my fucking son! And runs out the door and slams out the door onto Westwood Boulevard. And he thinks like, what happens? Or some guy, somebody getting in an argument or something like that. And then Shia walks back in the room and they hear him swearing again. And it's, Jack's like, mom, what is going on? And his mom says, he's improving, Jack. He's not doing the script. He's improving, right? He said, well, I, I thought we were gonna hang out and we were gonna meet the director. Well, obviously you're not going to hang out. You got to go in there and give it everything you can, and whatever he does, stay in character. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't, don't leave your character until the director says, "Okay, we've got it." Because she was with a right, knife right. on So this is crazy. So this is a ten-year-old kid. So 
he noticed that there was another kid that came out, but Shy was yelling, screaming, whatever, but the kid was staying in the room. So Jack Fisher, this kid, had the instincts. So they're doing the scene, and when, when Shia says, you know, fuck you, you're not my son, and he walks out the door, Jack runs after him. No, fuck you, you're not my dad. <laughs> oh, fuck you, I don't want to be your dad. And then he walks out on Westwood Boulevard, and the, and the, and the, and the director's out on the phone, and Jack runs out on the street with him. Don't you fucking walk away from me. I'm your fucking son. And they're out on the street in front of people having an argument <laughs> that looks real until they do it. And then, so, and then he thinks he's done and he's improv and whatever. And then the director says, uh, listen, you know that scene where uh, you get emotional and you got to cry? And I want to do that scene now. And his mom just happened to be outside, and he looked at his mom, and uh, and uh, and she said, uh, "Can I have a minute?" And she took him outside, and she said, uh, "Jack, I want you to think about that if your brother was kidnapped, then you're never going to see him again. Now go in there and deliver." And they're like, "Well, we can get onions or whatever he wants to cry." He's like, "No, I got it." And he was hyperventilating, sobbing in this thing with with. With Shia, I, that just gave me goosebumps. With Shia saying, "You're not my son." Oh my I god! I your son. Oh my god! And so, you know, the fact is, is that when you tell me what I look for, okay, I, right? I, I look for what you just said. I look for charisma, mm -hmm. star quality, mm -hmm. work ethic. Somebody doesn't make excuses. Somebody is not negative. Somebody doesn't do drugs or alcohol. Somebody who's present and willing to put the work in, and willing to get punched in the face, get knocked down and get back up and be just as strong. And so how I much mean. of it is the, are the, character, are the characteristics, how much of it is the actual work? What do you mean the characteristic? In other words, the, a person's character, like everything you're describing right now is not, so, is not really their artistry as it is their character. Is everything you described just now. But the character comes into the artist. Remember when I asked you, I said, you're doing this to make money? Mm -hmm. You're doing this to be famous? Mm -hmm. Or are you doing it for the work? Mm -hmm. This kid, in its purest sense, this is what's so great about this kid. He's doing it for the art. Mm -hmm. This kid has more money because of the Jackie Coogan law, which I don't know if you, your audience yeah, knows I know this. Jonathan but, Coogan, the, but, kid, but kids mm -hmm. get their money in a separate account. Mm -hmm. No one can take it away. They can take off the commission right. for the manager or the agent, mm -hmm. but the parents don't touch it. They mm -hmm. can't touch it. Mm -hmm. This kid has probably more money than his parents have, mm -hmm. and he has no attachment to anything except the art of acting. Mm -hmm. I did a podcast with Larry Moss. If you get a chance, you should subscribe to Industry Standard and listen to Larry of what he talks about in acting. He told this amazing story about, you know, you talk about what it takes. Because sometimes somebody needs somebody to get that out of them. And I think that's Are what... we okay? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't plugged in? No. Okay. And that's what managers and agents and, and people, acting coaches are like. So Larry told the story of how uh, Michael Clark Duncan, who hadn't booked a lot of roles mm -hmm. because, you know, he's a he's huge guy mm -hmm. and whatever, has done a lot of roles for the Green Mile. And they were testing like two or three people. And so oftentimes what happens, like a manager or an agent will call somebody like Larry, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, private coach, and Hilary Swank, and mm -hmm. Helen Hunt, 
and they'll say, when you meet with them, we'll pay you, meet with them, get them ready for this test. And so Larry goes into Michael's apartment and Michael said, Mr. Moss, with all due respect, I, you know, I, I'm not going to get this gig. I mean, I don't book anything. This is Tom Hanks. I'm not, I don't know what they're doing, but they're wasting their time. I don't, you know, and Larry was like, you know, sometimes people like you, you know you have it inside you. You just need somebody like me to let you know that you can do it. And 30 minutes later, they were holding hands in the, the seven-year-old white guy and Michael Clark were talking holding hands and they were crying in the living room. And when he tested, Larry was telling me that he was in back of um, Michael Clark Duncan. So he's, he's seeing the back of Michael Clark uh -huh. Duncan's head and he's seeing the face of Tom Hanks. And the scene ends and Michael Clark Duncan stands up and walks past Larry. And you can just see Tom Hanks mouthing the words, He is so fucking good. Oh. So fucking good. And he booked the role, got nominated for an Academy Award. And that night at the Academy Awards, I'll never forget what Larry told me. He said, he said, Michael Clark Duncan came up to him and he said, Mr. Moss, before I met you, I'd walk into an elevator and people would take a step back until their backs hit the wall. Mm -hmm. But after I met you, they'd take steps toward me oh. to hug me later. Oh. And, so, and so there's artists that have that in them, but sometimes they just need to have somebody beat the doubt out of them and then they can move forward. So can you, have you been that for people? Um, yeah, like I, I just got, uh, a lot of people called me because uh, Tracy Morgan just did a, a really big interview on Howard Stern and he talked about, <coughs> he talked about uh, our journey as Saturday Night Live and it's, a, it's an amazing story if you have a moment. Uh, yeah, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> let's hear this story and then we should so, start to wrap. So, I represented Trey Morgan. I saw him in Harlem. I used to go up to Harlem to watch the uh, Uptown comics, all the Apollo. black comics of the Apollo and the comedy clubs up there. I was the only white guy that went up there, but I love black comedy. The reason why I love black comedy, honest comedy. I performed at the Apollo. It was one of the best sets I ever did. There you go. Yeah, I loved it. They loved your comedy and a part of you from the waist down. <laughs> <laughs> it was more women screaming than men, actually. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so I saw Tracy. I loved what he did, but he had a manager. And mm -hmm. so... Um, At what stage of his career is this? Ne never did anything. Oh, okay. And so, um, so one day I'm in my office, and he walks into my office. He's... He's wearing uh, shorts that are all cargo shorts that are all beat up way down with boxer shorts up. He's wearing one of those white t-shirts that isn't white anymore. <laughs> it's like gray with moth holes on it. His shoes are all dirty. He's got these Converse All-Stars. He's got the hair that, what does Imus describe it as that got him in trouble? Uh, Tracy would say he's got nappy hair. Mm -hmm. He's wearing a beanie, a multicolored beanie with the thing up with the <laughs> propeller on top. And he comes in and he says, yo B, I don't have a manager anymore. I'm living in the projects with my four kids and my girlfriend. 
you gotta help me, man. I, I know you can help me make it. And I said, I will. And I got him a holding deal. I remember a pilot season holding deal. What made you want to work with him? Oh, I love watching DePaulo. He okay. just was such a great physical, such a great physical presence. So funny. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And so I... <laughs> I get him a $60,000 holding deal for the WB for pilot season only. And then I submit clips of the show that he did, a uh, little recurring on Hustle Man on Martin. And I submitted them to Saturday Night Live and I got him a test. And I called him and I said, we're gonna work on this test and we're gonna prepare him for it. And he said, where's the test? I said, the comic strip. And he just looked down and he's like, I, B, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I said, why can't you do it? He said, you know, B, I, I had never performed at a white comedy club before in my life. I don't think I can do it. I said, yes, you can. We have like a week, we're gonna prepare, and I would bring him to the office, and next to mine was empty, and we'd go through the set over and over again, like a boxer goes through the routine, and to where it was tight, then we did some shows at different places. It was killing. And so the time was ready for the comic strip. And he was so excited. And I talked to him in the morning, you know, a couple of days beforehand. And uh, so excited. And then I got the call around noon from Marcy Klein from Saturday Night Live telling me, listen, Barry, thank you so much. Uh, Lauren and I are so happy of seven people testing out of 16. You've done a great job. We appreciate everything. Uh, but Lauren thinks it's too many people. And, um, and we'd like to cut it down to 15. And there's one person that we feel um, that has the least chance of getting it. And we'd like to take them off the show. And I said, I can't do that. You can't do that. Please don't do that. It's only five minutes. Uh, Barry, we're, we're going to do that. And that person is Tracy Morgan. I said, you can't do that. I've been working with him so hard. He's ready. He is ready, Marcy. He's, he can do this. She said, listen, I'm sorry. Uh, next time. And she hung up. And so back then, there's no email. There's nothing. Holy. So, so this I'm, story is heartbreaking. So I'm, so I'm calling, faxing, typing on a regular typewriter with whiteout, you know. <laughs> um, doing everything I can, calling every hour, no response, nothing, messengers. But I didn't tell Tracy. I was scared to tell him because I just I didn't tell him. And then at four o'clock the afternoon of the test at the comic strip, I call Marcy's line and she picks up and she says, Barry, this is this is Saturday Night Live. This is, this is, you can't call like this. This is a professional organization. And I'm not going to go into detail of how many squares she gave upon me because I deserved it. But I said, Marcy, just listen to me. And she said, please, Barry, stop talking. Shut up. I'm not listening. No, Marcy, please, like, hear me out. She's like, Barry, stop. I'm like, Marcy, please. And she said, Barry, stop. He's on the show. He's on the show, but don't call me anymore. Don't talk to me at the desk. Don't reach out to me. Essentially, burn my phone number. I don't tell Tracy any of this. He goes on third. He kills it. He gets the test now at 30 Rock with about five or six other people from there. And he gets the show. And... 
and you talk about how persistence can get you where you want to go, but persistence doesn't matter unless... He's ready. You've got to be ready. Okay, but it's also, and this is a really important point, that before we, we sign off with you, having the right advocate... Is it wrong that I don't want this to end? No, that's, that's great. Um, having, having the right advocate is such a huge part of an artist's success. And I really believe that, but I don't... I'd be the first one to tell your audience that if I thought I was the right instrument and the right advocate, I was a young manager. I didn't even, I hardly knew what I was doing. But I mean, you knew when to do that and for whom. Yeah. And, and the fact that you were willing to risk your relationship with Saturday Night Live to make sure that that, that you know, that's, that's the manager we all want. Yeah, I mean, that's going all, to the wall. Right? We all want, we, I, like, I'm, I'll throw myself off the cliff with it for my art. And I want whoever I'm working with to be willing to do that for me, you know, at the same time. Because you and, have such complete and total faith in that's what he right. would deliver and what they would see in the but And also, that's a partnership. That, that is a winning. So if you have just the manager, you have just the artist. But when you have those two things together, that together willing to go to any lengths. But I also have the faith in Marcy Klein. And I, you know, I don't play golf with Marcy and Lauren. I don't have lunches and dinners with them. But I have so much respect. I mean, Marcy is an incredible cultivator of talent. She's been the executive producer there for so many years. And she's hard on me. She's always been tough on me. But she's always been great to me. And she knows that I, I, I'm presuming she knows that I have a great eye. And mm -hmm. if I'm going to send somebody to that's her, right. it's going to be somebody she should look at. And that's why I've had so many people test. And I've probably had, I've represented probably six clients that have done, that have been on the show as cast members and one other guy who hosted twice. And, and Lauren is a, he's a, you know, the guy is a genius. And again, I don't play golf with Lauren. You know, if I, you know, obviously if I ran into him, he'd say hello and we'd talk. But I don't have that kind of relationship with him, but I have a mutual respect for him. Mm -hmm. And he knows that the artists that I have brought to him mm -hmm. have done over 500 Saturday Night Live episodes. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of episodes, yes, and that's a is. lot of people. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I love the fact that that happens again from the beginning of this podcast, from zero, zero. Whether it's Daryl Hammond, who was a journeyman comedian in Florida, coming up to my office and saying, my dream is to be on Saturday Night Live. If you can help me get Saturday Night Live, I will sign with you. I will work with you. And I said, if I can't get you in Saturday Night Live, fire my ass. Jim Brewer, you talk about adversity. Jim Brewer had a sitcom with Dave Chappelle called Buddies. There were yeah, ads yeah. in the newspapers mm -hmm. and TV Guide. The show was airing on a Wednesday, and on Monday they fired him. And they took out all off the ads and they retooled it. And Jim Brewer was a guy who was like kryptonite. But I worked hard with his talent in mind, and he got Saturday Night Live that summer. And, and so, you know, these guys, are their talent transcends, you know, they're always ready. And so you're saying that when you meet somebody and you do that handshake, you know? You always I, know? I normally know now. Has anybody surprised you? Like, has anybody that you, 
no, 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 I don't want to work with you, I don't want to work with you, and then... Well, it's normally me who says, like, I have my moments, like when I interviewed Kevin Hart for my podcast, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about the fact that he told me he wanted me to manage him. I didn't feel he was ready at the mm -hmm. time. This is about 18 years ago. And I said, I don't think you're ready yet. Just be patient. And mm -hmm. he said, I'm not going to be patient. I'm going to LA. And he booked one thing after another. And every time I saw him, I would say, look, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I made a mistake. Lisa Lampanelli, mm -hmm. killing. Mm -hmm. Had a chance to represent her, and I didn't. I didn't feel like uh, it was something that was going to work out the way it did, mm -hmm. and she proved me wrong. Mm -hmm. And I did a podcast with her. It was great, and you know, I I love it. You know, Bill Burr. I resigned from working with uh, after I think eight years. I think he booked his first television pilot and didn't book anything else after that. And, and I made a mistake mm -hmm. um, because he is a great artist mm -hmm. and, and Dave Chappelle was right, you know, some things take longer and you have to ride it out. I interviewed Bob Sagan and he talked about how, you know, 12 years he didn't really work and his, he stuck with his management, his management stuck with him. And so we all make uh, mistakes or things that we do uh, that we don't like what we did. There's also people that I work with who I might not see it in like the dead zone kind of thing. But I know that if they work hard and they just get that one shot, they're going to do it. You know, there can't be, everybody in the world can't be a star. Unbelievably mm -hmm. extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you look at the Charlie Brown uh, Peanuts cartoon, you know, Pigpen is a very important character on the show. Very important. He's not Lucy. He's not Charlie, but he's 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 big. Mm -hmm. He's a big character on the show. He's my favorite character on the show <laughs> because I, the reason why he's my favorite character on the show because artists. I relate to Pigpen because mm -hmm. artists complicate winning. Artists are famous for complicating winning and the drama and the the the, the cloud follows them wherever they go. And it doesn't matter how great an artist they are, there's always something that happens. They say that extra word that ruins things or they do something. Look, I love Kathy Griffin. Brilliant, incredible artist. But, you know, she's around our age. She decides she wants to hold up uh, an image of the president's head with blood, you know? You would think, presumably, that she would know she made a mistake, but now, again, as an artist and as a manager, you make mistakes and you try to channel them into other things. I made some mistakes, I channeled them into Dane Cook, I channeled them into Dave Chappelle, I channeled them into Tracy Morgan. I might not have represented those people had I stayed with the other people. Mm -hmm. Kathy Griffin now has a world tour where she's holding up the globe <laughs> and she's selling out every show. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's so great to be an artist, whatever you're at, whatever you're doing, because what other, this is how we'll close it, what other, okay, what other profession in the world is there where you can fail 99 out of 100 times and still be respected, loved, a star, have all the money in the world? Brain surgeon, you choose to be a brain surgeon. You make one, you make <laughs> one, one mistake. mistake, and your career is over. 
You are done. You don't even get to work in Biafra. You know, one mistake. We, as artists, can write a hundred scripts and 99 stink and one's great. We can do a hundred sets and bomb 99 and the right person is in the room. Carol Leifer auditioned 24 times for The Tonight Show before she got it. I mean, can you imagine out there if you somebody told you no 24 times in a row? Would you still feel like you... But all it takes is one. Mm -hmm. and, and for everybody out there, um, as Rob Schneider famously said it in about eight Adam Sandler movies, <laughs> you can do it! <laughs> That's a perfect... And Barry, I want, I want to thank you so much for this. What, what I'm most impressed about, we didn't talk about Barry at all. Um, you were totally focused on the purpose of the show. And... Even though it would have been interesting to know how you came to do what you do, we'll do that another time. Because what you gave us is so helpful and a reminder to me that it's, it's I just have to always be an A and just always bring my A, always, and believe that. And I do believe. We will, we will do it. We will break through. I do believe that. And um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for being an A and mm -hmm. making me feel like an A. And this was an honor to be here. I loved it and I really enjoyed it. And you got something great going on and keep Thank up you. the great work. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Louise. We'll see you next week on The Road Taken.